Hello and welcome back. The first Sasta episode of 2018 with me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings, with two Bs on Snapchat. And my word, it is good to be back. Not only are we back, but Sasta Annual 2018, the greatest SAS conference on earth, is now less than a month away. Join incredible guests like Box's Aaron Levy, Atlassian's Mike Cannon Brooks, and Founders Fund's Cyan Bannister, and get your tickets. And if you use the promo code Drinks with Harry, yes, those three words, Drinks with Harry, you'll not only get a Happy New Year 10% discount, but an exclusive invite to me with me. I'm not sure if that last one's an incentive or disincentive, but let's go with it and move into the show today. And I'm so excited to welcome a leader of industry today, Ross Mason, founder and VP of product strategy at MuleSoft, one of the world's leading software platforms, making it easy to connect the world's applications, data, and devices. Following over $250 million in VC funding from the likes of Lightspeed, Salesforce Ventures, Sapphire Ventures, and NEA, MuleSoft then went public in March 2017, popping as much as 45% on its first day of trading. As for Ross, prior to MuleSoft, he was CEO of SymphonySoft, an EU-based company providing services and support for large-scale integration projects. And before that, Ross was lead architect for Rabobank and played a key role in developing one of the first large-scale ESB implementations in 2002. I do also want to say a huge thank you to the people that made the show possible, Jason Lemkin and former guest MuleSoft CEO Greg Schott. I so appreciate the intro today. However, before we move into the show state, today's podcast wouldn't be possible without high Five, the firm making meetings better for thousands of organizations with insanely simple video conferencing designed for meeting rooms. But why would the episode not have been possible without them? Well, not only a High Five the sponsor of the show, but today's interview was recorded using High Five, switching from our traditional Skype usage. Why the switch? Well, honestly, for me, it was about two things, quality and ease of use. It's the easiest to use solution with all-in-one hardware and intuitive cloud software. Plus, it's this really high quality experience with industry-leading audio powered by Dolby Voice, which you'll get to hear in today's episode. And it's so easy to use that there's no pin codes or app downloads. Just click a link in your browser and you're in the meeting. And with customers in over 100 countries, High Five is already trusted by the likes of Warby Parker, Evernote, Expensify, and Betterment, just to name a few. And to learn more and start your 30-day free trial of insanely simple video conferencing, visit highfive.com forward slash sasta. That's highfive.com forward slash sasta. So if High Five is mastering all things team communication and you're a data-driven CEO, executive or manager, the other big thought for you should be, how do I manage and measure my team with clear objectives? Well, you should try A-Team to set clear, measurable objectives for your company, create a one-page strategy that links to your execution and measurable progress, and align your entire company to what matters most. A-Team uses OKRs to identify progress bottlenecks early, allowing you to scale your SaaS faster and better. A-Team is the unified and integrated three-in-one platform for strategy, objectives, and performance management. Simply head over to A-Team Dot com. That's A-T-I-I-M dot com. And get a free SaaS CEO's guide to OKRs for 2018. That's A-T-I-I-M dot com. That really is a must. But enough from me. So without further ado, I'm thrilled to welcome Ross Mason, founder and VP of product strategy at MuleSoft. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Ross, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to former guest and MuleSoft CEO Greg Schott for the intro. But thank you so much for joining me today, Ross. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Looking forward to it. Well, I am too, but I'd love to kick off today with a little about you. And how did a gig to connect 100 systems with an investment bank lead you into the world of SaaS with the creation of MuleSoft? 
Yeah, so I started life in banking and insurance, which is not a very exciting place to be even 15 years ago. But I was connecting back office and middle office systems. And I was working for an investment bank in London for a pretty large-scale architecture. To cut a long story short, what I saw in front of me was just chaos. I hadn't actually worked in this environment before this, this first project. And it was amazing how I had teams of people doing what looked like roughly the same sort of thing, which was connecting applications and data together. But they're all using Using different products, different frameworks, different nomenclature, different languages. And I couldn't believe how difficult it was to actually operate inside these environments to move information around, basically. So at the back of that project, it was actually successful and almost killed me, actually, as far as sort of career goes. I was exhausted by the end of it. But everyone deemed it a massive success. And I was so shocked that people thought that was successful that I thought there had to be a better way of doing it. And that was the inflection point for MuleSoft creation? It really was. So I thought to myself, what would I do differently? How would I tackle this problem in a way that would solve it for the longer term, not just the way it had been done up to that date? So I, I looked at all the different types of integration platforms that are out there, and you realize that they're all doing roughly the same thing. So I looked at the product landscape for middleware, and I, I realized you could probably collapse it all down onto one platform. And that's the platform we, we built at MuleSoft. But I do want to discuss one kind of key element being the relocation and super interesting inflection point in the business, the decision to move away from from Europe and to the West Coast. So I'd love to start with that and the decision-making framework for you with the move and the core reasons behind it. I hear there's a story in it. Yeah, so um, I actually, I was based in Europe when I started the company and I, I raised funds in San Francisco because honestly, back then it was really hard to raise money outside of Silicon Valley for this type of software. Uh, I did try in the UK and, and I got a lot of no's and not even one maybe, so I, I came to the West Coast. But when I did that, I didn't plan on actually moving moving out to the West Coast and I was actually commuting and it was terrible and painful. And I kind of do wish, and I've, I've told my early investors this, that they should never give me that money without making me move <laughs> to San Francisco because <laughs> we spent the first two years with me traveling back and forth because I, you know, I had some commitments in Europe. The framework for moving was pretty simple. It was a lot of travel. I was getting burnt out and the company, as we hired more people, developed this problem that we, we ended up calling the waiting for Ross problem which was if a founder in the early days is not close to the team. And bear in mind, we grew up as an open source project first. So our team was pretty distributed. And the thinking was, we've done such a good job building the software. Why can't we run a company that way? And the reality is you can't. You can't have founders and key members of staff in different locations, especially in the early days when you're trying to figure out the cultural dynamics of who the company is going to be, the products that you're actually going to take to market and how you're going to represent yourself in the market. So it created all sorts of problems me being remote but the story around why I, you know the, the trigger for me moving was i was actually on one of these trips coming back from san francisco and it was about three in the morning and i was woken up on the plane by a stewardess who said hey we've, we've had to turn the plane around and they didn't give us any more information so immediately you think it must be a terrorist attack or something like that i mean this was in 2008 so there's a lot happening in the world mm -hmm. even back then and it wasn't until about three or four hours later that the captain came on and said hey we, we couldn't land anywhere in the uk because uh, a volcano in Iceland had erupted and, and basically covered most of Europe in ash. It was that sort of terrifying three-hour moment when I really thought about 
why on earth am I traveling back and forth between London and the US like every three weeks? I should probably just move there. It's causing us problems anyway. This gave me a, a really good reason to sit and think critically about whether I was going to make a go of the company and, and you know be where the action was, which is in San Francisco, or was I going to try and keep making it work remotely? It was a, a forcing function, if you like, of natural disasters. I, I do have to ask then, with that in mind, how important do you think it is today for founders to be in the Valley and, as you said, at the heart of the action? Is it still pivotal? I don't think you need to be in the Valley, I th- but I think the team needs to be together, right? And, you know, you had Greg on last month talking a bit about our culture and the way we work. We've definitely rotated to, you know, we don't really like working from home policies. We like people to be in the office because we just see there's so much knowledge sharing that happens when people are together. When people aren't together, we're just not as effective at figuring out some of the big problems. And I think the challenge for all companies is, you know, the balance between getting people together to figure out the big problems and then letting people go off and own their destiny and get their work done at the same time. That, that, that's a hard balance, I think, in any company to strive for. And I think you've got to kind of build it into the early cultural values of the company when you first get started. So having the founder or the CEO or the co-founders in one location is really important because that's when that type of structure gets put in place. Can I ask, what were some of the really big challenges in making the move from Europe to the US? We often hear about the hiring hotbed that is the West Coast. What were the big challenges for you in making that big transition? Well, yeah, I mean, first year of the company, we, we hired people anywhere and it was mostly engineering and it made it much easier to find really good engineers wherever they lived. So we had people in Germany, people in, in Malta, we had you know people in Argentina, New York, San Francisco, they're all over the place. But it allowed us to find very sort of key elements of talent that would have been much harder to find in one location. Also, you got to remember in 2008, 2009, when I actually moved over and we started hiring more aggressively, nobody in the Valley wanted to work on back-end software. Everyone was enamored by mobile and wanted to work at Google or Facebook. So the big challenge for us was where were we going to find people to work for a company that nobody's ever heard of in a space that you've got to understand the space before you can get excited about it, which is you know connecting applications to data and devices isn't obvious to people of why it matters and um, the impact it can have on, on these organizations that we sell to. So back in 2008, it was a real struggle to find talent. And what we did was we decided to set up a, a remote development office in Buenos Aires. And you might ask why there? Well, we had two people down there. So we figured if we've got two, that's more than we have in San Francisco. We have one person. Why don't we see if we can hire down there? And it turned out to be a really good bet to place. So Ross, does that not go against the thesis of having everyone in the same place and having that knowledge sharing capability? So what we did is we separated parts of engineering because we just couldn't hire in one place. So San Francisco had all the critical business functions, everything from you know field, sales, support, services, customer success, and some engineering. And then we had another engineering team in Buenos Aires. And we made it work because of a few things. One is the time zone is pretty good. You know, they're only three hours ahead of San Francisco. So we there's a lot of overlap there. The school system down there is excellent. Uh, the, the pool of talent is big and, and very well skilled in Buenos Aires. And we do a lot of cross-functional teamwork and exercises between the two offices. So the executives are in Buenos Aires at least every four weeks. A lot of Buenos Aires teammates come up to San Francisco. Some of the San Francisco people go back down there. So we do a lot of cross-pollination to make sure that we don't create silos. Mm-hmm. But it's not ideal, but we put up about 100 engineers down there. We, we couldn't have hired 100 engineers in San Francisco and, and made the economics work. Can I ask, when you reflect on the movement process with hindsight now, what, what have you learned? Say I'm a, a, a young SaaS founder. What have you learned that can help other entrepreneurs going to the US to, to go big like you have done with MuleSoft? Yeah, I, 
I think I didn't know this was really important at the time. It just seemed obvious, but I've, I actually advise a lot of startups now. And, and it's one thing I look for is, you know, are the founders aware of what their market opportunity is? And not only what could it be, but what are they going to do in the next sort of year or 18 months to capture that first value to get some proof? Like, I mean, for VCs, every VC looks for that. But I think for founders, it's not always so obvious, especially first time founders, that it's really important not just to look at the, the shiny widget that's right in front of you, but really understanding what role the company that you're trying to build is going to play in, in the broader market and have have a vision for that. I, I think one of the things that kept Mulesoft going in the early years was I did have a pretty strong vision of where things could go and uh, why this connecting applications, data, data and devices was so important to enterprises, even when it wasn't immediately obvious to people. No, absolutely. I do, I do want to kind of transition the conversation to what a large part of our discussion today will be on being SaaS platforms and, and whether companies can make that transition to a SaaS platform successfully. So starting on a high level, what does it really mean to be a SaaS platform? It's commonly thrown about platform, platform. What does a SaaS platform really mean? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, right? So I think there's SaaS applications and there's SaaS platforms. SaaS applications are, are things that do, you know, one function or a few correlated functions well together, but they need to exist in an ecosystem of other pieces of software, right? For example, a lot of the you know, marketing automation and, and everything around SEO and everything else around digital marketing, there's there's 5,000 SaaS apps out there. All those applications, most of them are actually apps. They're not really platforms. Platform for me is where you have a corpus of, you become the, the sort of master data for a key element in the business. And you can leverage that to enable other, you know, an ecosystem of companies to build off that data and build their own companies around you. So, you know, people like Salesforce have done this extremely well and, and obviously the one that people point to, but there's lots of other business models where that's worked pretty well as well. So if you look at people like Expedia, they're not considered a SaaS platform, but if you look at the way they, they made their revenue in the travel business, they drove over 50% of their revenue through their affiliate APIs and created an ecosystem of applications around them. Like as soon as you've got other companies building value around the value you really bring to market as a separate new application that they bring to market, I feel that that's the tipping point for becoming, you know, switching from being a, a SaaS app to a SaaS platform. So now we know what it is. Before we dive into the how, I'd love to know how it specifically affects three kind of core elements of an organization. So how first does unbundling change the process for building products and services? Well, so unbundling is really interesting because I know your audience is going to be predominantly founders and CEOs of companies that bring SaaS applications to market. What we're doing with our customers is we sell directly to enterprises for the most part. And unbundling for them is really about decoupling the complex weave of interconnections between their applications and data internally so that we can start exposing the key data and key capabilities as APIs, independent building blocks that you can then stick together to build new products and services. So the unbundling is the process of breaking those big monoliths up into smaller chunks that can be consumed in faster and different ways within the organization and potentially through other ecosystems. So as an example, like banks are very used to bringing verticalized products to market, right? So consumer banking is a verticalized product. You, you get all your consumer services from Bank X. What they're going through now is breaking that up into a series of 500 or 1,000 services or APIs that those APIs can be plugged into other ecosystems. So if a fintech needs you know, loan origination or loan clearing services, they can go to one of the big banks and get that, that capability from that bank without getting all the other services from that bank, right? And, and it also saves the fintech from having to build that type of service themselves because 
because their value is typically in usually last mile consumer engagement and providing a better experience for a, a certain segment of a demographic. So moving to the second element, how does it change the ability then to, to drive revenue? You mentioned Expedia and their kind of API driving their revenues. How do you think about the, the changing of revenues and driving that with the unbundling? Yeah, so revenue is probably the one area where people have seen where the value of, of this sort of unbundling or turning yourself into a platform really take hold in the business. And the idea is fairly simple. The execution is not as straightforward because I think there is some trial and error of figuring out market fit for services that you bring to market. So if you think about the banking example, right, they're still going to have verticalized products, but they also have these new services that should potentially generate revenue, right? So if I'm clearing payments through like a retail bank through an API, I'm probably paying something for that service. It may not be the same as signing a contract to say that Wells Fargo is going to clear all my payments as a retail outlet. I might be going through something like, you know, an Intuit service and, and then Intuit is passing on some of the revenue they get from that customer onto the bank, right? So what's happening is you're shifting away from vertical products into value chains where the services you provide in the value chain of getting something done that the customer cares about, the more touch points you have in that value chain, the more money you make out of it. But it's quite hard to forecast at the moment because we're going through this big shift on where the biggest revenue generation is going to happen. So a lot of what MuleSoft does with our customers, and remember that these are the banks, the telcos, the governance, insurance agencies, those sort of things. We're helping them get ready for unbundling themselves so they can plug a lot of these new services into the market and then allow the most successful ones to bubble to the top and the, the less successful ones to, to be retired. So we're getting these organizations ready for change by turning their assets into a set of reusable components, really the SaaS platform where their own organization and their ecosystem can discover services that that organization offers through this layer. I do want to touch on one element you said there about kind of the importance of touch points and having as many as you can. Does the unbundled platform not really create a, a situation whereby you can't own the entire customer interaction anymore, though? I think that's a reality, and I think that's something that most organizations have or are starting to realize is going to be the case anyway. The challenge you have is when you've got, I mean, we did a, a survey recently in, around banking and who you might use or trust for banking, and we asked how many people would accept Amazon or Facebook as their primary banking platform. And it was pretty surprising that like 47% of people said they would trust those brands with their banking services. And that's kind of worrying for banks, I would think, because banks have gone through a tough time in the last seven or eight years, both in terms of the public outlook on the big banks and whether they're really adding the right level of value that they should be, plus some scandals around cybersecurity attack and things like that have sort of tarnished the big banking reputation. And consumers are aligning more to consumer brands, and those consumer brands are, are leveraging that to bring new products and services to market. So the reality is, is if I'm a bank, I've got two choices. I can either go up against Google or Amazon for the consumer experience, or what I can do is I can make my payments or loan origination or regulatory framework services available to those giants and still be part of the value chain for that consumer, but just not own the whole experience. And that's kind of what's happening, certainly in banking. I think even in retail, it's starting to happen a bit. And you know, you're going to see other industries, you know, have their own version of this disruption happening as well. So now we're convinced that this is the right approach to take. Talk to me, what's the route that one would take to make the transition successful? What are the key building blocks and foundations then that must be taken to make the unbundled platform successful? Well, so, you know, interestingly, if you're building a SaaS platform from scratch, right? So if you're a fintech, like we work with a number of fintechs like Adam Bank in the UK, that is the first mobile bank, and they've built their 
banking platform as a SaaS platform. So if you start from scratch, you know that what you want is a, a set of core services and those services drive your mobile experience but allow you to plug into other ecosystems as well. So new organizations in the last five or seven years have really figured out that's the direction you need to go in order to be able to continue to innovate while adding more products and services. For everyone else, you know, whether it's banking or telco or even governments, what they need to do first is change the way they work internally. And, th- and this is actually about culture. It has nothing to do with technology, but it's the conversations we have time and time again with CIOs, COOs in particular, because COOs drive organizational change. And even CEOs is getting the company to understand that the way in which they unlock their digital assets, their data and their capabilities really matters for the next 10 years because they don't know where the next set of innovation is going to come from and they can't keep investing in one-offs to adopt the next technology trend and, and serve customers the way they want to be served. So the first step is a cultural shift in the organization to shift away from delivering vertical solutions and one-off products to delivering capabilities. And we call those capabilities APIs and they plug into something what we call an application network, which is essentially a SaaS platform for their own business. So we help companies start to build towards opening up their core business as a set of software as a service assets that can be leveraged at the front of the business in different ways. So it becomes much easier to build mobile apps or you know chatbots for, for customer support or sales or even for internal HR type of activities. And it helps them think about how they're going to move forward with some of the new newer technologies around AI, around machine learning, and even around IoT for a lot of scenarios where they're looking to create a, a different type of physical digital experience. So it really, the first step is that cultural shift of we're going to do things differently and then put the processes in place to support that cultural shift of not delivering projects, but actually delivering reusable assets. And then the software is there to really help take those assets and turn them into a SaaS platform for that business. I do want to dive into one of my favorite elements of any interview being the 60 second SASTA. So Ross is 60 second SASTA. Are you ready? 60 seconds per question. 60 seconds. All right. I can do that. Ticking clock. Let's start with how did it feel the day MuleSoft went public? Absolutely amazing and surreal and very emotional, actually. I was pretty overwhelmed. I actually only remember the day through the photos and the video. I don't actually remember being there in person. It was like a very out-of-body experience. What piece of advice do you commonly hear being given that you maybe most disagree with? I hear a lot of companies talk about their people being the most important asset, which I wholeheartedly agree with. I don't think many people really understand what it takes to invest in their team and people. So I, I feel like it's one of those things that people always say it's the most important thing, but then don't really follow up and spend the time needed to build the culture and, and the hiring process and the career development that's required to make human capital your most important asset in the business. What's your favorite SaaS reading material? Rainy day on the West Coast. What do you sit down and read? Obviously, it's SaaS. I have no doubt. <laughs> it, it is. I read a lot of SaaS. No, so for me, uh, I like the SaaS market maps, you know, the ones where every year they release, you know, this is what uh, marketing technology looks like. And I love it just because it's just a, a great reminder of how software really is infiltrating every part of every business globally. And every time I look at one of those maps, I think, yep, that's the reason why MuleSoft exists. And that's why we're going to be one of the next great software companies, because we actually help connect all that together. And then let's finish on what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning, starting very from the days maybe in Malta, starting with the first few days of MuleSoft? What do you wish you'd known then that you know now? Yeah, good question. There's loads of things. But I think I had a vision for building a platform from day one. And in some regards, I think that helped us get funding and help people to see the vision of where we wanted to go. I wish I'd also understood the value of narrowing that down for people early on so that we could connect with the audience much quicker. 
quicker than we did. So, you know, we spent three or four years really building out a platform before anyone really understood what it did. And and I think we could have accelerated that and got better market proof points and, and actually grown quicker had we focused not just on the overall platform, but the specific use cases that our customers really wanted us to solve for. So that's that's a bit like, you know, it's product market fit, but we were in such a amorphous space. It was very hard for us to focus early on. And focus is really critical in those early couple of years as you start to prove out who your market's going to be and what the business is going to look like. Ross, as I said at the beginning, I had so many great things from Greg. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. So thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I have to say, I did so love that chat with Ross and absolutely fantastic to have a fellow Brit on the show. And you can find out more about Ross on Twitter at Ross Mason. That really is a must. Likewise, it'd be fantastic for you to join us behind the scenes at Sasta by following me on Snapchat at HStebbings with two Bs. It would also be fantastic to see you in person at Sasta Annual 2018, now just a few weeks away. And you can join me for exclusive Mojito Drinks events by entering the promo code Drinks with Harry. And with that, you'll also get 10% off the ticket price. It would be fantastic to see you there. But before we leave you today, today's podcast wouldn't be possible without High Five, the firm making meetings better for thousands of organizations with insanely simple video conferencing designed for meeting rooms. But why would the episode not have been possible without them? Well, not only are High Five the sponsor of the show, but today's interview was recorded using High Five, switching from our traditional Skype usage. Why the switch? Well, honestly, for me, it was about two things, quality and ease of use. It's the easiest to use solution with all-in-one hardware and intuitive cloud software. Plus, it's this really high-quality experience with industry-leading audio powered by Dolby Voice, which you'll get to hear in today's episode. And it's so easy to use that there's no pin codes or app downloads. Just click a link in your browser and you're in the meeting. And with customers in over 100 countries, High Five is already trusted by the likes of Warby Parker, Evernote, Expensify, and Betterment, just to name a few. And to learn more and start your 30-day free trial of insanely simple video conferencing, visit highfive.com forward slash sasta. That's highfive.com forward slash sasta. So if High Five is mastering all things team communication and you're a data-driven CEO, executive, or manager, the other big thought for you should be how do I manage and measure my team with clear objectives? Well, you should try A-Team to set clear, measurable objectives for your company, create a one-page strategy that links to your execution and measurable progress, and align your entire company to what matters most. A-Team uses OKRs to identify progress bottlenecks early, allowing you to scale your SaaS faster and better. A-Team is the unified and integrated three-in-one platform platform for strategy, objectives, and performance management. Simply head over to ateam.com, that's A-T-I-I-M.com, and get a free SaaS CEO's guide to OKRs for 2018. That's A-T-I-I-M.com. That really is a must. As always, I so appreciate all your support, and I cannot wait to see you next week for our episode with Fred Schilmover from Insight Squared.